0: So let's have a little family talk before we turn our attention to Psalm 112. Don't want to uh, embarrass anybody, but welcome back. If you've been gone for a long time because you've been having physical troubles and you're back with us for the first time, welcome back. Welcome back. Um, Family talk about camp. I want to talk. have a family talk about camp. Um, this summer, there are camps, good camps, all over the state of Michigan. Our experience with CELA, Camp CELA, uh, is was our main camp where our, our kids go. Um, here's why I wanted to mention this to you. It's May, toward the end of May, summer camps will be over in a few weeks. Uh, once we get the first few weeks of August, they're, they're, they're over and the, the opportunity to go to camp has passed. I would pray that every one of our children of an eligible age will go to camp this summer. N- money should not be you know, a reason not to go to camp. Uh, we will figure out a way to get you to camp. Here's what I'd like to say. Please, um, as a pastor, I don't, you hear me talk s- this seriously very often. As a pastor, I want to appeal to every young person in the church and every parent of a young person to participate in a, a Bible camp this summer it's such a powerful way to help a young person to walk with the Lord. And it's so fun. Um, so here's what I'd like to do. Um, if you're not sure where to go or when, where to sign up or how to pay for it, don't worry about that. You know, we have uh Ms. Christy Marshall is designated for, for that. That's her role here at the church is, is to make sure that families are helped with their children and young people. And we'll help you in the church office, call the church office, we can walk you through a variety of camps if you don't able to find a, a particular, a camp seal is full or something. I don't think it's full, so uh, that would be where we would uh, aim in you. I, please um, take seriously what I'm saying. Um, sometimes it's just life changing. And uh, so I wanna stop and pray right now that God would, would um, put it on your heart to go to camp if you're not signed up for camp already. These camps are careful their, their young people are juried carefully. They're, they, they passed. uh, So there's, there's the care that goes into the care of the children and watch care over them. So I want to pray right now about that and, uh, and, and this appeal that you would hear it. Lord, today uh, we think of the children in our church and also those in our circle of influence. Maybe their parents don't bring them to church at all, or maybe we, you know, just whatever circumstance that we have met a child of uh, eligible age, I pray that you'd help us in this. We, th- we know this is something that's very powerful. We know it's something that works. We know it's something that pleases you. And I pray, Lord, for the, the counselors that you would send the counselors to the camps that they need. Uh, I pray that you'd stir up uh, those who w- would give and help, and especially, Lord, that you'd help us to think creatively about getting our our own children, grandchildren, others' kids to camp this summer and that uh, you would be honored in that and the gospel would go out in a beautiful way and children would know they're loved and and, uh, we know that that's dear to your heart. So we pray that in your name today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. The Bible says praise the Lord in this Psalm 112, a Psalm is a praise psalm. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the one, we'll say one for now because it includes men and women. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord and who delights greatly or who greatly delights in his commandments. Here's the structure of my talk today. We're going to say, what does this not mean? What does this not mean? We're gonna answer the question, what does this not mean? We're gonna answer the question, what does this mean? Like, what does it mean? Uh, And then we're gonna say, how can this be true about me? Those three things. What is this not saying? (laughs) What is it saying? How can this be uh, true about me? That's what we're gonna do because this Psalm is shocking in what it appears to be promising. On the face of it, doesn't it look like for the person who fears God and delights in his commandments, he has health and wealth and unbroken health, wealth, and happiness. On on the face of it, it would seem this would be a great text for those who are the health, wealth, and happiness preachers that never take any of the scary texts of the Bible. Maybe on the surface it would seem that. Why is that not true? What it's not saying, first of all, it's not saying this is a guarantee of health, wealth, and happiness. I want to tell you three reasons why we know it's not saying that. God's word promises blessing, but doesn't equate blessing with unbroken health, wealth, peace, prosperity. A dear sister was in our services a number of years ago here. She heard me talking about the blessing of the Lord on her life she wrote me a message and said i've gone through this great great sorrow this great hardship this great betrayal i'm not blessed i'm not blessed so this message would be a really good answer to that dear sister who feels like how can i be blessed and praise the lord because i'm blessed if if i've been betrayed betrayed or if i have a season of poverty Or if i have a diagnosis of cancer or if i have a mental health problem or if i have a loved one who's far from god or if i lose my job can i still praise the lord because i am blessed and i would say yes this is not a guarantee that the blessing of the lord means unbroken health wealth peace and prosperity Three reasons. One reason is because that's not the kind of literature this is. this is. This is actually Hebrew poetry. It's also Hebrew wisdom literature. And so it's a special kind of genre of literature, if you will. It's a special kind of literature. It's arranged as a poem. And in, 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 in the Hebrew poetry, sometimes there's a, a parallelism, a similarity. Like this is like one line says something, the next line is like that. In other cases, the, the, the rhyme is a, a thought rhyme or an antithetical thought rhyme. It's like, and that's what you have here in Psalm 112, like you have in Psalm 1. It's the righteous and the wicked. You have the one who's blessed, the one who's cursed. The, the, the Hebrew poetry style or, or type is an antithetical uh, arrangement or it's how it's different or how, or how it's like or, or it can be synonymous uh, parallelism, if you will, like these things are ca- cause and effect, or they're alike or they're different. But, but English poetry is usually, you know, meter and rhyme, and we're used to that, but Hebrew poetry doesn't work like that. But it is poetry. Now, now to understand this, you, you, want, to, you want to see it as poetry. You don't want to see it as like didactic literature or teaching literature, like descriptive literature in the sense of analytical, descriptive literature, you want to see it like, like a poem that's describing a fragrance or art or psalm that's describing a picture. It'd be like, imagine, let's pretend that I bought a brand new suit. My wife would like me to wear suits and ties all the time. She watches the guys on sports and says, pastors dress like bums anymore. The only way you can see a man in a suit is to watch sports. She actually, she actually says this to me. Um, so imagine that I decided that I was going to buy a nice, crisp suit with a tie and an iron shirt. And I walked in. I said, how do I look? And Lois said, why, you look wonderful. I could eat you with a spoon right now. Because <laughs> that's the way she talks to me all the time. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't go, oh, you're not really going to put me in a blender and then eat me like soup, are you? Of course not. What she's really saying is, you look great. You, look, you don't look like a pastor today. You look like you're a sports announcer today. That's what she's actually saying. I was driving in south of Chicago, and people were flying past me. They were flying past me. like Nobody was going, whoo, whoo, whoo. you know, they, weren't, they were just driving really fast. It's a poetic device. Well, this is a different thing. But Psalm 112 is is not saying this is an absolute guarantee of health and wealth and peace and prosperity. It's a general picture of the life of a blessed person. So the kind of literature that it is would tell us this. Maybe you remember us talking about Billy Collins' poet on poetry when he says, you don't tie a poem to a chair and beat it with a hose to get a confession out of it, in other words, you smell the fragrance of a poem. He says you, you ski across the surface of a poem. It's like you feel into a dark room and you flip on the light of a poem. It, 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 maybe you remember back in 1989, there was a movie called The Dead Poets Society. And John Keating had graduated from this men's uh, prep school in New England. He had returned to teach. If you're a teacher, you know this, right? And his first class, he's an English literature teacher. And his first class was to have the students open up their poetry books and read a little passage in the front of the poetry book that was the the writer was describing how to analyze poetry. And he was saying you could almost apply an algorithm to it, and you could almost rate a poem. And remember what he says? Remember what Keating says? He says, rip it out. Rip it out. Tear that page out of your book. Remember this part? And and so everyone's looking at him like, and he goes, I mean it, rip it out, tear it out right now. And he made everybody tear the page out. Later on, another guy took over his class, came back, said, open up. They said, that's not in there anymore because <laughs> John Keating had us tear it out. And he says to the students there, he said, we're not laying pipe here. We're talking about poetry. I want you to rip that entire page out. With Psalm 112, I would say, Let's not beat it with a hose. Let's not, we're not laying pipe here. Let's step back a little bit. Let's look at the beauty of this poem. Let's smell the fragrance of this poem. Let's feel the terror of this poem. Let's let this poem affect us in the way that it was designed to affect us in a general way. This is, this is, the poem is a beautiful picture of the blessed life of the one who fears God and who delights in the Bible and the commandments of God. It's not, a, the blessed life is not a trouble-free life. It's saying that the blessed life is a prevailing life, and we'll, we'll prove that from, internal evidence, but that, the kind of literature it is tells us. The poem is a beautiful picture of the blessed life of the one who fears God and who delights in his commandments, not a trouble-free life, but a victorious life, a faithful life, a hopeful life, a prevailing life. And we, when we face hardship, the blessed one turns ever toward the Lord, and we've mentioned this before, and not away from the Lord. He or she pursues hope and doesn't yield to despair. So you have the kind of literature it is tells us that it's not an absolute guarantee of health, wealth, and prosperity. The internal evidence, if you will, that we're going to see here in a minute, also tells us that. Because when you read Psalm 112, and you just read carefully, the first time you read it, it looks like, wow, this person has got a fantastic life. Their, Their kids are doing great. They're able to loan money to other people and not borrow. This just looks like a person with no trouble. But all you really have to do is read it more carefully, and you see that there are multiple internal clues that that is not the case. At first glance, the man looks perfect, but look closer. In verse 2, his seed, his descendants are mighty on the earth. That means he has children. That should tell you right there that he doesn't have a trouble-free life. Because if you have children, and you desperately love them, That means you're going to have circumstances in your life that cause you to stay awake at night and pray and worry, and you'll be concerned. Verse 3, there's a promise of prosperity, but it doesn't imply an absence of hardship. Wealth and riches are in his house as righteousness endures. Verse 4, he is a light, but where is he a light? He's a light in the darkness. Light dawns in darkness for the upright, He's gracious and merciful and righteous. In other words, he's a light in a dark place, which implies there's darkness around him. So he has kids, so therefore we know he has burdens, and he doesn't. He has uh, prosperity, which implies that there's another possibility, and he's a light in darkness, which implies that he lives in darkness. He is merciful in the second part of verse four, which means that he has to deal with hurts and offenses just like you and I have to deal with hurts and offenses. That is one of the most difficult things in life. He lends and he's generous. That would mean that there are people around him who are living in need or in poverty. So around him is poverty. In verse 6, he's stable, which must mean there are threats to his stability. In verses 7 and 8, he's trusting So there must be another option. There are bad times or hard times in which it's important for him to trust. In verse 9, he lives honorably. Therefore, there would be an option for him to do dishonorable things or others around him who are doing dishonorable things. And then in verse 10, he's prevailing over enemies, which means he has enemies. So would this be a picture then of a person with unbroken, trouble-free life? Would this be a picture of a person who there's no threat of poverty, no threat of opposition, no enemies? Of course not. So the internal evidence shows us that what this poem is not saying. It's not saying that a blessed person has a guarantee of health, wealth, and happiness. We know that because of the kind of poetry it is, we know that because of what it says in the poem, the poem is a beautiful picture of the blessed life of the one who fears God and who has a great delight in the Bible a great delight in his commandments, even though he faces poverty or need or hardship or darkness or barrenness or opposition, he ends in Hillel, praise the Lord. He ends in praise the Lord. Now there are external clues. Let's just think about the whole of Scripture and let's take this question, does this passage teach that the blessing of the Lord means my husband will never leave me? Does this passage teach the blessing of the Lord means my wife will never misunderstand me? Does this passage teach the blessing of the Lord means I will never lose my job or have a financial pressure? It doesn't mean that. And here are external clues. Answer this question in your heart. Did other men and women that the Bible commends, did they enjoy life without rebellious children, without difficult relationships, with unbroken ease, and with unbroken comfort? And the answer would be, no, they did not. Let, let me give you an example. Well, who do you think of immediately? Job. And the Bible says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And how does the Bible describe him? It commends him. It says he's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. So we know this man was blessed and never had any trouble. Well, if you know the Bible narrative, you know that Job's kind of name means trouble to people. No, he was blessed, but he's blessed in, this, in, the, in, this, in the middle of difficult circumstances. How about Noah? Was Noah blessed? The Bible says he was blessed. He's described in Genesis 6-9, these are the generations of Noah. He was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. He walked with God. Eddie, wouldn't you love it if somebody said that about you? Eddie was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That guy well, I'd love that, wouldn't you? I, we we had breakfast together, so I know this is true about Eddie. I'd like for people to say that about me. Was in, so did Noah have a completely unblemished record of faithfulness to God? No, the answer is no. He did not. There was Josiah. As These are just jumping around to give you a handful of examples. He was a good and godly king. Started really young, didn't he? I like that. Started with eight years old. If I was an 8-year-old king, I would have unlimited Captain Crunch. I'd have dump trucks of it. He followed God, but he had godless and hapless sons. At the end of the day, we recognize that he was blessed of God. Job was blessed of God. Noah was blessed of God. Josiah was blessed of God, but they didn't lead trouble-free lives. Joseph was blessed of God. David was blessed of God. Daniel was blessed of God. But he got thrown into a lion's den. Other... Old Testament patriarchs that are in the that the Bible commends and calls them blessed went through hardship and the New Testament believers many of them the the apostles they they were martyrs and that their names are synonymous with God's blessing they were blessed in their hardship even through their hardship they yet they ended the day saying praise the lord blessed is the one who fears God, who delights greatly in his commandments. Did our Lord and Savior, did, was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, blessed? Yes, a chorus of yeses went up from the well-taught people. Yes, he was blessed. Was Jesus blessed? Yes, Jesus was blessed. He was the epitome of blessing. And did he lead a trouble-free life? This was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and yet the epitome of the blessing of God upon his life. So the kind of literature it was leads us away from the conclusion that the blessing of God means unbroken wealth and health and happiness. The internal evidence leads us away from that. The external evidence absolutely leads us away from that. And it leaves us with the question, so what is it saying then? What exactly is the blessing of God? What it is saying is the one is blessed who fears God greatly and delights in his commands. We've established what it's not. Let's look at at what it is. Some of you remember that I like to quote Lucy Maud Montgomery. I was even bold enough to do this at a men's conference last week. She's the Presbyterian pastor's wife who wrote Anne of Green Gables. And there's that little phrase that I've repeated many times when Marilla is trying to comfort Anne Shirley, who dyed her hair and it turned green and despaired. And she said, I'm in the depths of despair. You remember this. You probably will not remember the Bible verses that I taught, and you'll remember this. Um, I'm in the depths of despair. And Marilla wisely says, oh, Anne, to despair is what? To turn your back on God. Wherein the well-taught Presbyterian pastor's wife came out of Lucy Maud Montgomery and the mouth of of, uh, Marilla to despair is to turn your back on God. But to hope is to, in your difficult circumstances or in your questions or in the doubts that you have in your life, to face the promises of God and trust, say, praise the Lord, blessed is the one who fears the Lord and who delights greatly in his commandments. Let's establish a couple things here that are interesting. First of all, what do you do here in this psalm? What is the one, the man, the woman who wants to be blessed? What do we do here? Here? It's all in verse one we praise the lord we fear the lord we love the bible we delight in the commands of god what do we do we praise the lord we fear the lord we delight in the command that's the whole point of the series and of this message and that is that the people of god would delight in the law of god and all these things are happen to the person who who Meditates on God's word day and night. He's blessed. She's blessed. That's Psalm one, Psalm nineteen, Psalm one nineteen, Psalm one twelve. Throughout the whole Bible, you delight in the law of God, the blessing and the favor of God. Come on, your life. Let me remind you: what do you do? You you praise the Lord. You fear the Lord. You delight greatly in the commandments of the Lord. The rest of the entire Psalm is what happens or what God allows to happen. What it looks like to have a blessed life to the one who, get up in the morning and the first thing you do would be the thing that you must be delighting in. The thing that you do when you're sad must be the thing that you're delighting in. The thing that you do when you're happy must be the thing that you're delighting in. The most worn book in your library would certainly be the one you delight in. The one that you memorize would be the one The one that you think about, the one that you go to bed thinking about at night and you wake up thinking about in the morning the one you make up songs about that's the one that's how we can tell what you delight in if you know you know all the statistics of your baseball team we know what you delight in if you know all about that compound bow that you want to buy before next fall we know what you really delight in not that that's altogether wrong lest i offend people with firearms but god would say you want to bless life Delighted in God's word. And my favor will be poured out on your life even when things are hard. I love that. You'll be blessed in your family life, the this, this scriptures say. That, that's why it says, and I love it, his, I memorized this years ago. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who delights greatly in the Lord, who, who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments, his seed will be mighty upon the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his household. He will not fear those who come upon him. In in our version, it says, praise the Lord, blessed is the one or the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. There'll be evidence of God's blessing on his family. Bible doesn't promise that we'll have perfect families, but the Bible does teach us that the blessed man, there'll be evidence in the way that he deals with his family and in his family. And so I would encourage you, you, you I know you have mixed results with your family, don't we all? I know that sometimes you're, you're real proud of your family and your family makes you really happy. And there are other times when your heart is broken about your family. And that's true about everybody that I know. I would just say this therefore you want the blessing of god on your family therefore you want to delight greatly in the commandments of god because the one who delights greatly in the commandments of god is the one that knows how to deal with those thorny heartaches in the family that person is blessed in his family life i know what you're thinking you're thinking well it doesn't like in some areas of my family life i don't it doesn't seem like i'm blessed so you have to remember you don't want to see this from your point of view. You want to see it from God's point of view. You don't want to see it from a temporal point of view. You want to see it from an eternal point of view. The God who says, if you sin against me, the the effects will go two and three generations also said, if I bless you, the effects will go to a thousand generations. In other words, God in his infinite power can leap over generations to pour out blessing. You trust him. You pray. You live faithfully. You love God with all your heart. You fear God. You keep his commandments. And your effect on your family will be to a thousand generations. This is what the Bible says. You'll be blessed in your financial life. This doesn't mean that you'll always have wealth. Jesus didn't have wealth. He didn't have a place to lay his head. Old women supported him and fed him but he had a powerful eternal beneficent effect on the world would you not say he had all that he needed sometimes he slept out under the moon and stars you'll be blessed in your emotional life so it says here he he is um verse six the righteous will never be moved will be remembered forever he's not afraid of bad news his heart is firm trust in the Lord. Today, we have an epidemic of emotional upset, of anxiety and depression. Well, why don't we return to God's Word, fear God, and, and delight in His commandments, and you'd have blessed in your spiritual life. This is what I've been praying for you this week as I studied this. May God help you see this from God's point of view, a providential point of view. If you help, help you see the providence of God, how God works out things after his will over generations ultimately, not just immediately re- immediate results. I prayed that God would help you have this perspective by the Spirit's power. Most of you are familiar with First Corinthians, where it says, It's written, Eyes not seen, neither is ear heard, neither is entered in the heart of men. The things God has prepared for those who love him. But the next verse is often not quoted. They're revealed to him by the Spirit. My prayer for you would be that the Holy Spirit would reveal this to you personally, that you would see through the Spirit's revelation in your soul, this is the right way to live. I will fear God. I will build my life on the promises of God. I will not despair or turn my back on God, but I'll lean into his promises and claim his promises and trust those, and that the Holy Spirit will give you that assurance, that you'll see God's providential working, that the Holy Spirit will work within you. That's 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 that you would have this eternal point of view rather than taking this immediate, like if I do this, what will immediately happen? What does God say will ultimately happen forever? That's the perspective you want. Now, important clarification is what does it mean to delight in his commandments? If you go to the New Testament, and you listen to what Jesus said about that. It's more than just you could repeat them. He said, teach them to observe my commandments. You know, so some of you might say, I know the Bible says love one another. Well, the goal is not that you would know the bible says love one another. You say I memorized five places in the bible that say love one another. The goal is not that you'd memorize bible verses that say love one another. The goal is that you'd love one another. What you do is what you delight in. You can't say I delight in something you don't do. So you may have you may be able to win the sword drill or are you may able to but may be able to Um, win the Bible quizzing, or you may be able to quote something. You you may be able to be quicker on your feet and faster to know where the Bible says things, but that's not what Jesus is looking at. Otherwise, he would never have told the story. And toward the end, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses an illustration about the house built on the sand. And he says, this is the one, the man who builds his house in the sand is the one who hears my word, but he doesn't do it. And the one who builds his house on a rock is one who hears my word and does it. So like if I'm a teen, I go, okay, well, I'm just a teen. So God only expects of you what he expects of a teen. But if you're a teen, you're, you're sh- your mind is sharp and you're quick to learn things. You're quick to pick up on things. You're setting your sail for life. So I would love to be a teen again with my Bible on the top of my books. God, I just show me. I'll start to obey whatever you tell me. Then you'll strengthen me to obey more and my life will be characterized by obedience to God, and I will be blessed. That person will be blessed by God. It will be like a beautiful picture of God's blessing, and I only have a few years left. How many years do I have left? I don't know. Fewer than I did. And I often think, God, with the years that I have left, I don't want to be a guy who knows the Bible. I want to be a guy who does the Bible. I don't want to be a person who talks about the Bible. I want to be a person who actually lives the Bible commands. I want to be blessed. That's what is required of us and God. Now, you you might be thinking, oh, that puts it on a whole different level. It's easy to know what God said. But it's so much harder to be generous with the poor to be forgiving to those who hurt me, to actually love the unlovely. How am I gonna do that? Thanks, Ken. But this is really hard now. This actually feels impossible. Let me just say this. I believe this poetry was arranged to, to, so that that's the effect it would have on us, that we would say, Who is sufficient for these things? Who could ever be this kind of man? Who could ever be this kind of kid? Who could ever be this kind of woman? that all these things are true about them? And the answer would be, the only one that could be this kind of person is the only one who ever was is our Savior, the Lord Jesus. This picture is not ultimately a picture of us, it's a picture of him. I happen to notice that Wesley Hill, uh, Karis. I don't know, maybe you were present, uh, when he spoke in chapel at Wheaton, Wesley Hill. So he spoke on this text over there And it was very powerful. He has some unique pressures in life, some unique temptations. He's a single man. He'll probably be single all of his life. And he's a pastor. And in his testimony there in in Wheaton at the college, this is what he said. I recall reading at about age 16, reading this Psalm 112 at about age 16. It seemed like I was the worst verse of myself I had ever encountered. He said when anger or rage or lust or pride or selfishness seemed to lurk around every corner of my psyche and I saw no way to pray this psalm with integrity. My hands weren't clean. I hadn't kept the ways of the Lord. I most certainly had not been blameless, nor had managed to keep myself from iniquity. Those feelings were still there when I came to this campus, he says, talking about, you know, the Wheaton campus. And I remember waking up in my dorm and reading the Bible and feeling a keen sense of unworthiness, of failure to live the godly Christian existence. Who cannot echo what he's saying there? I wish this was true about me, but I've been trying all my life. And it just seems like my progress is like moving backward or going slow. That's what he was saying. No doubt a big part of this was the product of growing up in a legalistic church environment, he said. But I'm sure there wasn't all of it because every Christian tradition, whether Catholic or Anabaptist or anywhere in between, is always reminding us that we fall short of the glory of God every day, all the time, and the confession of sin my tradition gives me, he's Episcopalian, is to say every morning includes these lines, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And when you internalize that message, it can be hard to know what to do with a psalm like this that we've heard this morning. Can we as sinners know ourselves? Know this ourselves and pray? So then Wesley Hill answers the question by going to a little book written by the, the, the German martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by the Nazis. And in a book on this psalm, he mentions this is only ultimately true of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one who perfectly fulfilled Psalm 112. And Jesus alone doesn't want us just to know that he perfectly fulfilled it, but he wants us to be emptied of self-effort. The whole... The whole message of the Old Testament is God is absolutely holy and demands absolute holiness, and we are unholy and cannot be holy, and, we, and, and the blood keeps getting shed for sin, and the lambs keep dying throughout the whole entire Old Testament, including this psalm, this probably with a messianic element, until you get to the New Testament, which opens with a man saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, when we come to a psalm like this, we should be encouraged that there is one who did live a sinlessly perfect life and in him and through him, living out who we are, having trusted him, we can make our way toward this ideal of this man, this one who is blessed by God. It's interesting, uh, he Wesley Hill gets the end of his little sermon there in which he does in like 14 minutes what most of us would have to take a longer period of time to do. And then he quotes this beautiful hymn, Jesu, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are and glorious dress. Thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are and glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head you're you're defeated by sin but you're victorious in Christ and blessed in him and only in him and you live out who you are in Christ in, in Notre Dame is famous the, the football players at Notre Dame they go out under a sign you know and they tap the sign and what does it say it says No Notre Dame fans here everybody knows this <laughs> you're like I know what I'm not saying Anybody know this? You didn't watch Rudy? Culturally ignorant people. What in the world? Play like a champion today. Remember that? Now you know. Play like a champion. All the players go out to face the enemy and they tap the sign. Play like a champion today. At Wheaton, there's this is football coach who's unlike a lot of other football coaches or basketball coaches at Christian colleges where they're just kind of selling their soul to the devil. This guy is like on fire for God. He's serious. He's serious. There was a student, and I think they named a hall after him there at the college named Todd Beamer. And you probably remember that Todd Beamer laid down his life on the flight that was going to probably fly into the perhaps the White House or the Capitol, and they crashed in the Pennsylvania field. And remember his last words were, let's roll, let's roll. Guess what it says there when you go out to play on the field at Wheaton? The, he was a Wheaton grad, Todd Beamer. It says, let's roll. This psalm is the banner over the locker room in your life, that you walk out and go live a blessed life today. Delight greatly in the commandments of God today. He's promised us his blessing. May that be true about you. Stand with me while we receive a blessing today, and then um, take a minute to greet one another after we've been blessed, uh, and then return those of you that are members here, and we'll take care of our election today. Officers.